Alright, let's take a moment here just to pray together, get ourselves focused. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity we have together once more to open your word. God, I pray that we would uh, realize what we have here, Lord, in, in your, your scripture. I pray, Father, that the glory and witness of your Son would be clear to us even in this text as we continue to work our way through this difficult book. God, help me to speak. Please help me to be clear and help everyone to listen. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I, uh, that hymn we sang tonight is, is one of the most excellently written hymns there is. It, that, it's, when at the cross the Savior made me whole is such a biblical thing to sing. It's such a great song. I love that song. We're going to take the next three sermons uh, through Job to end the cycles of his speeches with his friends. So tonight we'll look at the two sections remaining that concern Eliphaz. That's chapters 15 through 17 and chapters 22 through 24. Then we'll look at uh, Bildad and Zophar over the next two Sunday nights. Um, None of them add anything new to the arguments they've already made. More or less, they continue to say the same things, to accuse Job of sinning and of refusing to confess his sin. Eliphaz repeats the exact same theology. He just gets harsher. He has um, the exact same approach in chapters 15 and 22 that he had in chapters 4 and 5. I'm punching those together because I want to rush it. It's not that. It's For our purposes in Job, the friends have made their points. And as we look at those, those, these last time, which each of them, they, they make their points well enough. Job's responses become the focus more and more. It gets more obvious that he's basically ignoring these men and bringing his questions almost exclusively to God, which is really where, um, for us, Job is, is particularly Precious is, is the more that you see Job kind of separate from addressing those friends and addressing the Lord, you're, you're going to find Job asking questions that really all of us have, that all of us would like to have answers for. Um, remember this as we head into tonight. Where information is lacking, speculation will flow. We talked about that at the very beginning. That's one thing. That's one thing to to remember, that where information is lacking, speculation will flow. The deeper thing to consider, for our sakes tonight, as we continue to work our way through Job, though, is the deadliness, the deadliness of ongoing speculation when the information has been provided to us. Of continuing to speculate about what is true when we know what is true. When God has revealed it to us. That's where we want to zero in tonight. The trouble with speculating when we don't know, but as we consider where we are in light of God's revelation to humanity, the trouble with us speculating now when we do know, when so much has been revealed to us about God through His Word in Christ. So Eliphaz believed that Job had no real fear of God at all, so there was no end to the evil he must have committed. Job maintained that the witness of his innocence stood in heaven and would vindicate him even as he sank further into despair at what he couldn't understand about God or his situation. And so where we're going tonight, while there are things about God that will always be too difficult to fully comprehend, what God has revealed about himself is sufficient to give us peace. So now may we hear and believe God's word 
together. Let me read chapter 15 to you. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your inquiry teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your too small for you or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? Eliphaz never stopped trusting in that spiritual experience he had that he talked about in chapter 4. He's, he's bringing, what he learned in that, which I believe very clearly in the text was the devil messing with him, what he learned in that remains the basis of his whole approach to Job. It's the same kind of talking here from 4.18. Behold, God puts no trust in His holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in His sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. I will show you, hear me. And what I have seen, I will declare what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears, and prosperity the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. He's just pushing Job to see what wicked people are like so that Job will see himself. It's, but it, as I'm reading it, you hear it. It's just words and words and words and words. Verse 24. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist and has lived in desolate cities and should inhabit which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry shoots and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. Eliphaz continues to miss the mark. Instead of considering anything Job has said, instead of honestly thinking on anything that Job has said, he doubles down on his theory about Job. In fact, since Job won't agree with him, Eliphaz accuses him of having no fear of God at all. That's his problem now. Actually, you have no wisdom whatsoever. He ridicules him. Again, he lays out what wicked people are like so that Job can see himself for what he really is. He says, look, I don't even have to condemn you. You condemn yourself every time you open your mouth. His, his almost mechanical view of retribution, of karma, that's his approach to the universe, has completely damaged his view of God. Eliphaz's God could never love the wicked. Right? He could never love the wicked. He can only make sure they pay for their sins. All right? he can only, Eliphaz's God 
the only involvement he has with humanity ultimately is to make sure that guilty people get punished. Skip up with me if you can, or if you would, to chapter 22. So this is the second cycle with Eliphaz. 22 is the beginning of the third cycle with Eliphaz. And I'm trying to be quick because I want to get to where I think the meat is tonight. But this is Eliphaz's third speech to Job in chapter 22. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to Him if you make your ways blameless? You see, they've, they've run out. So now he's like, well, you, maybe, what if you were right? What difference would it make to God, right? Verse 4, it is for your fear of Him that He reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Really? When did he do all this? Therefore snares are all around you, verse 10, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are? But you say, what does God know? Can He judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. Agree with God and be at peace. Therefore, thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from His mouth and lay up His words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. It's just the same thing. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him and He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but He saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent. Be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. It's just more of the same. Job has brought his suffering upon himself because he sins, so he needs to repent in order to be at peace with God. Except now, now because... Job will not listen. Job won't relent. He won't just say, you know what, you're right. I've sinned so much, I need to repent. Now Eliphaz has gone as far away from God's assessment of Job as you can go, that Job is righteous, to making up things that Job has done wrong. He's he's, he's so angry, he's just, you know what, you've probably done this, and you've done this, and you've done this. He's telling Job to repent of sins he hasn't committed, basically. I don't know where... Eliphaz, or for that matter, beloved, anyone else in the book has gotten their beliefs about God. Remember, this is way before there was any scripture written. Job is the first, the earliest book of the Bible that was written. So I don't know where they have gotten the information they have, but they do not have the necessary information to speak into Job's situation. All they can do is speculate. And you see it just going off the rails the more you read into the book of Job. They're forgetting that speculation needs to be held with a loose grip. 
Eliphaz is basically a deist whose God is impersonal. He's so big. He's so transcendent. He has nothing to do with his creation beyond making sure people get what they deserve. If there's anything we need to take from the three friends, it's this. When revelation from God about himself is lacking, what we use to fill in the silence will be incorrect. The only chance we have to know God is if he reveals who he is to us. We do not naturally have the capacity to correctly understand God on our own. We are completely dependent on revelation from God to know God at all or to get anything right about Him in what we believe about Him. So when revelation comes, if that's true then, when revelation comes, when God's Word comes to us, when He does reveal Himself, we cannot reject it. I want to say we cannot question it, but I understand we're going to, to question God at times. I'm not saying that's necessarily sinful. What I'm saying is, is that we salvation is not in the questioning, right? Yes, we're going to want to question. and It's not like God's going to destroy us when we question, but our questioning means we aren't accepting what we've heard. We can question, but we need to recognize that we need to hold to our questions loosely is what I'm saying. When God has revealed something and it comes to us and we don't understand it or we don't like it, if we're probably being more honest there, we need to understand that we're probably in the wrong. Not probably. If, if we're trying to decide whether or not something is right, like, like we've talked about this before, when, when you hear people say, well, if that's who God is, I want nothing to do with Him. That's so dangerous. That's so dangerous. When God does reveal Himself, we cannot reject it. We can't change it. We need to bow before it. So even if we need to work through it, that's fine. But we need to know as we're working through, there's one place that can go. It needs to end with us on our knees before the Father. In summary here in chapters 15 and 22, uh, Eliphaz is, believes that Job's problem is he doesn't respect God enough. You see that? You, know, you, just, you don't have enough fear of him. You don't respect him. That's why there's no end to the evil you've committed. So just repent. Make it right with this ever-watchful judge, and then things will get better for you. Again, you see it. The three friends have the theology of Satan. The only reason to serve God is, is that he will do well by you. That's what they believe. All you can do for this God, for Eliphaz, is God is appease him. Well, how does Job respond to all of that? First, in chapter 16 and 17, if you want to go back there, Job responds partly to Eliphaz's accusation that he doesn't fear God, but then more he reflects on where his hope can be found. So let me read 16 and 17 to you. I'm trying to do this quickly so we can get to it. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? Right? Why do you even care? Why are you talking to me? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up, which is a wit against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. 
He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversity sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. How much is this man suffering? God gives me up in verse 11 to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me and my eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me. You see, all this, Job is looking to God as the source, the sovereign source of everything. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day, the light they say is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? If I give up, if I just lay here and die, where is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Basically, Job says to all of his friends, really, you guys stink at giving comfort. You stink at it. Why are you even talking to me? Again, that, that's, that's how he starts off. What, what, is, what is the point? God has broken me apart. And I don't know what I did. Job has a similar view of retribution, at least to some degree, doesn't he? In other words, Job believes, I must have done something. But he doesn't know what it is, and he's tried to convince them. He's saying, look, I know everything you're saying, but what did I do? He's getting no help from his friends, but it's becoming more clear that he isn't getting any from God either. So we'll see a glimmer of hope from him, but there's just too much despair for him to be able to hold on to it. When we do see Job hopeful, it's in those moments where he realizes that this God that he knows will not condemn the innocent. There's just no way he will condemn the innocent. So in the first part of chapter 16, he calls out his friends. He says, the more you talk, the more pain I feel. You guys don't have anything new to say. You have nothing to add to the arguments. I know what you know. Why would I think what you're saying is special or new from God? If the tables were turned, I could say the exact same things to you. So Job is correct about his innocence. He's not suffering because he did something wrong. But even Job is like the friends 
in that he is wrong. He doesn't have all the information about God's justice. Neither Job nor his friends have all the truth in their analyses of the situation. None of them has the wisdom to answer the questions. God has not revealed the why. God hasn't revealed anything to Job or the friends. Nothing. Silence and hopeful prayer from Job and for Job from his friends is all that should have been taking place. The book of Job should be very short. But it isn't because we speculate when the information is lacking. And we always end up incorrectly. Job remains righteous in God's sight. We have to respect the end of the book only because his questions are based mainly on faith rather than presumption. In the second part of chapter 16, Job laments that God must be his enemy. I mean, technically, what else could he feel? God is ultimately behind everything contributing to his suffering. In Job's framework, how could it be otherwise? And the difficult thing for the reader, we want to correct him in that, but we have the first two chapters telling us God did all this. That there's not, that's not an accident. That's not an accident. Satan was an instrument of God against Job. He's completely exhausted. There's no relief. And, and so we might feel the temptation to turn into one of his friends and say, this guy is just not seeing it. Well, of course he isn't. <laughs> Who would? He's, he's dying. He's lost everything and there are no answers. And I think as you watch even Job begin to break down, God is pushing us through his word to ask ourselves, not in a way to condemn us, but to get us thinking, how would I respond? Would my faith hold out if I was suffering like this and there was silence? You and I have the benefit of the Scripture. That's my point tonight. Job did not. God is present to help Job. He's there. It's just not in a way that Job can see. I think God is the one keeping Job from becoming completely hopeless because it's amazing how so quickly out of Job's constant despair or deepening despair uh, come these bursts of hope. Where do words like we find in 16, 18, and 19 come from? When he says, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Right? Don't let my case disappear. Even now, behold, my witness, the one to defend me, is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. So underneath all of Job's suffering and questions and the darkness is this belief that God will vindicate him. Because God knows the truth, He will witness for Job. But He returns in chapter 17 very quickly, very quickly, to lamenting, to just pure despair. Chapter 17 is extremely dark. The miserable comforters are taking their toll. Beloved, there, there, there will always be that in our lives. Well-meaning people, maybe. But that we will always be surrounded by some who are there to help us and speak truth into our lives and help us and bring us along. But then there will always be other voices in our ears. So much that competes for our attention and belief and that tempts us to doubt, it will always be there. He contemplates the reality of his situation there in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 17. He resigns himself to the fact that his life is broken. All his plans and desires have been destroyed. Everything's ruined. Everything. All his best days are behind him. Remember, his wife can't stand him. Because of his integrity, the future is dark and lonely and painful if there is any future at all. The only sure thing 
Job is, is thinking now is that eventually I'm going to die. And, and what he's saying is, what if I die before God answers my case? That's just making it worse for him. His hope of being vindicated is fading fast. And so by the time we get to chapters 23 and 24, where Job is responding to Eliphaz's last accusation that his wickedness is so great, Job doesn't even respond to him at all. He doesn't repent of any wickedness that Eliphaz accuses him of. Instead, he just turns and speaks directly to God. Job focuses on his case, the reasons he should be vindicated. He insists again on his innocence. He wrestles with what he thinks is injustice. Right? He, he believes this is unjust. So he won't give in to false repentance. That will only bring false peace. He maintains his integrity, even if that means his relationship with God will be difficult. So lastly here, let me read 23 and 24 as he responds to Eliphaz's third and final accusation, which remember was that he, you can't even count how wicked the wickedness of Job is what his friend Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint bitter. This is chapter 20. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast in steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he what he appoints for me and many such things are in his mind see that now it's beginning to spread out now Job is beginning to turn his, his eyes to, to the whole world to the whole issue of justice and suffering everywhere that's what 24 will be therefore verse 15 I am terrified at his presence when I consider I am in dread of him God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know Him never see His day? See, this is where it starts to get dangerous for Job. He's not going to fall. It's just some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkeys of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They... Thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They're wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked. You see what that where are you God question has done? Now he's looking at everything going, you know what, you're, you're not even there. Do you not see what's going on all over the world? Verse 10, they go about naked without clothing. Hungry, they carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the winepress but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. That's incorrect. 
Right? That's incorrect, but that's what it looks like to him. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before the light that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses by day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. You say, swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. They wrong the barren childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet... God prolongs the life of the mighty by His power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported and His eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? The wicked get wickeder and they pay zero price. And here I am in the ashes. Is the essence of what Job is saying. Chapter 23 is a statement of confidence, really. Job believes that if he could present his case before God, the outcome would be in his favor. Again, we've heard him say this before. He knows the situation is difficult. His suffering still weighs heavily on him. He doesn't know how he can present his case to God, but he believes that if he can find him, God would answer him. So even though Job can't see God, he believes that God can see him. He does believe that. He's scared of God. He's scared of him. He knows God is not to be taken lightly, but he believes that God will accomplish what he's appointed for his life. And it just can't be that this is it. Right? That's, that's all he's basically clinging to. There's no way that I'm going to die and this is it. And then in chapter 24... Job starts to wrestle with what he also thinks is injustice in the whole world. That it's not just him. Wicked people get away with hurting others all the time. How can God allow that when it's righteous people that seem to be hurt by it, or the poor in particular in verses 2 through 12? Don't you see the poor? Don't you care? You see what's going on here? This is where we we need to, to perk up because this tends to be where we can go when we are suffering. Job's personal suffering is weighing so heavily on him that he turns outward. He looks at the world in general, suffering in general, and he says, yeah, you know what? I Give me some answers here. Job's contemplation causes us then to do the same tonight. It brings up tough questions. Why do the wicked seem to prosper and not really have to pay? Why do people get away with it sometimes? Where is God? Why isn't he answering these questions or doing anything about all the injustice? We know that God can do this. I think that's at the heart of what we're looking at tonight. We know that at any moment, God can cause a light to turn red. He can cause a gun to not go off. He can keep a storm from brewing. Why doesn't he do that? He could do it whenever he wanted. All Job can hope for is the chance to speak with God. I think there's hope in that. But we do have to start considering what Job, like what, what would you say if you took God to court for being unjust? How would you argue that? Based on what? Based on what? 
outside of God Himself would you argue with God on? He realizes it's not just his own vindication that he's after. He has tons of questions for God. There's much he doesn't understand about the world in which he lives in light of the fact that there is a God. Hanging over the book of Job tonight. What I'm going to try to do is find a theme in these tonight and those next two about the friends of what is it that we're really dealing with here, if I, if I can try that. Hanging over the book of Job is the undeniable reality of the sovereignty of God, isn't there? It's, it's the basis of Job's whole difficulty. There is a God, and this God is in charge of everything we aren't. How do we make sense of everything? That's at the heart of Job's cries, I think. This issue of sovereignty. That, that's really what Job pushes. The questions that Job pushes are questions about God's sovereignty. Now, what does God do? Does He permit? Does He ordain? How much control does He actually have? How deeply is He involved? That's what these men are ultimately wrestling, wrestling with. Life in a world where someone else is sovereign. Someone else is actually in charge. And, and we have never learned to be at peace with God's sovereignty, I think. We've never learned that. Few things in the Bible are more difficult for us to accept than the fact that God is sovereign. But the book of Job pushes us to deal with it. I can't remember if I told you this yet or not, but my friend Darby, a pastor, says that the book of Job is like a bottle of bleach right in the middle of the Bible. And it will just clear your head of bad ideas about God. It, it will leave you with, with, with nothing, in a sense, and, which is a good thing. But it's there. It's, it's been there since the beginning. It's driving the book. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We wanted to say there, no, 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 the Lord gives. Satan took away. But no, God took away. Job wasn't wrong. That's what the text is very careful to tell us. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil? Job, you can't say that. Well, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's there. That's who God is. And God is not trying to get Himself off the hook either. We do that. We're almost embarrassed when we come across sovereignty in the Bible. So the minute we see it, now, 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 it doesn't mean what it, it means what it means. It means what it means. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil? That's possible. Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We've created categories to like make sure we never take that text at face value. It's dangerous. God isn't ashamed of His sovereignty. We're ashamed of His sovereignty. We don't like His sovereignty. Because we let philosophy inform our interpretation of the Bible sometimes instead of the other way around. So rather than submitting to the revelation God has provided, what's very clear, we keep speculating. We keep questioning what is there when God's Word is sufficient. There are texts, beloved, that are hard. Has disaster come to a city and the Lord has not done it? Amos 3.6 Has it ever happened that disaster came to a city and God wasn't behind it? That's His Word. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Lamentations 3.38 In Isaiah 46, He declares the end from the beginning. 
He doesn't just know. Do you know why God knows the end from the beginning? Because God has declared the end from the beginning. This is what's going to happen. I make well-being and create calamity. Isaiah 45. The greatest sin in the history of the universe was undeniably, objectively brought about by the predetermined, predestining will of God in Acts chapter 4. The cross was foreordained evil. What do you do with that? That doesn't fit in any categories. It's there. God is sovereign. That's what they called Him in Acts 4. That's how they prayed to Him. Sovereign Lord, because You're in charge of everything, do something about this. Make us bold. It's the basis of all prayer. Why pray? People say... Why pray if God is sovereign and everything's determined already? Why pray if He isn't? What can He do? Who has the power in the universe? Who makes things that aren't into things that are? God does that. We have zero hope if He isn't in charge down to the details that He can do anything. If He's got to wait around and wait for us to be okay with it. He, he, he doesn't merely allow. Is one of, We have to face this. He doesn't merely allow. That's what Job is showing us. He ordains, he causes, he reigns by ordaining decree over every millimeter of the cosmos, of the cosmos. He has absolute power, which means nobody else does, right? East to west, north to south, everything in between and beyond, God owns it all. Abraham Kuyper was right. Absolutely right. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. This is not, by the way, this is not like a, a Calvinistic discussion. Talk about this at the very beginning of Job. I want to talk about it again. That's what we do. We create systems so that we can put doctrines into systems and say, that system is bad, that system is good, and we don't deal with the text. It's not a Calvinistic creation. It comes from the Bible. I'm quoting verses from the Bible here. Calvin didn't corner the market on anything. So we're not talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Arminius didn't either. This is the pervasive witness of all Scripture. Old and New Testaments. The Bible calls Him Sovereign Lord because He is sovereign. Even down to the details, right? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every turn is from the Lord. Have you ever played Scrabble? You know who decides what letters you get? God does. That's what we're talking about here. That's an amazing thing. And, and you, well, are you saying God? I'm not. I'm saying that. That's my point. I don't know how to answer the other questions. I don't want to speculate. I want to look at what we can know and work from there. Like, like, the, like the questions to refute it, I don't care what they are. The lot is cast into the lap. It's every turn is from the Lord. Done. Full stop. The king's heart is like water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The answers don't come when we deny what is clear and try to create something we can stomach. Right? Don't want us to do that. Or pretend that words don't mean what they mean. Words have meaning. Right? That's a fight for the Bible. 
Words have meaning. To deny peace, peace comes. Peace comes. Not when we figure it all out. Peace comes when we trust what has been revealed. That's when peace comes. To deny the sovereignty of God is arrogance, beloved. It's sinful. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We are not sovereign. Instead, you ought to say, because it would be right, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Really? I need to be, like, if the Lord wills, I'll, uh, after service tonight, there's, the kids don't have school tomorrow, we're going to take them out, have some food, maybe see a movie, if the Lord wills. Right? If the Lord wills. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. When you act like God's not sovereign, when we act like that, even in the most minute details of our life, All such boasting is evil. It is boasting to believe that God is not sovereign down to the details. That's what the Word of God is telling us. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. I just quoted the Bible to you. James 4, 13-17. Whoever knows by reading the Bible that God is sovereign and fails to acknowledge it or tries to worm their way around it with philosophy or by trying to pit Scripture against Scripture, is not being clever, they're sinning. Right? So there are other texts, beloved, I totally get it. But do we really think the answer to the, the issue of sovereignty is to say, well, yeah, but over here it says, would we pit God against God? Like, that's the answer? Like, oh, no, he totally contradicted himself. That's not true. That's what we're saying. When you can't use the Bible to undo the Bible. It, God is sovereign, and yet, beloved, we are 100% responsible for every choice we make. And we'll give an account for it. I don't know, philosophically, how that works out, but what difference does that make? God is not bound by the limits of the human mind. All those arguments, right? This, this, when we start speculating, we start saying, no, 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 it doesn't mean what it, what, those words don't mean that. They mean this. That's how you get like open theism. Guys like Greg Boyd, it's so dangerous. Well, you know, the, the, again, the arguments are just speculating. Well, then we must just be robots, then nothing matters. It's already been decided, so who cares that we can't go there because the Bible doesn't go there. That's not how the Bible talks about it. They just fall by the wayside in light of God's, God's, God's word. We, we, we start speculating, right? Well, you know, for a choice to be free, this and this and this, for love to actually be love, says who? Right? Says who? And what I'm trying to do now is push us into a realm where we don't feel overly confident with our theories. They don't hold up. 
what I hope we can see is that we'll run into problems if we start heaping onto God our own understanding or definitions of truths that are way beyond our capacity to grasp. I think that's why the friends go so far off the rails because they can't stop speculating. We'll create a God we're okay with so that we can worship Him and we'll reject the one who is if we do that. That's at the heart of what Job's friends have done. They've created a different God. That's why they have false gospels. For them, rather than just being quiet because they didn't have all the information, they talk and they speculate and they ramble on and they're taking away his hope. It doesn't help anybody. They're destroying him. They aren't helping him. God is on another level, beloved. And please hear me. I'm not claiming that the things I've just described or the verses I just referenced are open and shut in a way that answers all the questions. No, what I'm saying is they are there and we have to deal with them. And by deal with, I mean accept that they are God's Word. And we'll find when God finally shows up to Job in the whirlwind, when God appears and says, all right, that's enough speculating. Now I have some questions for you since you know everything. That's scary. That's terrifying. We find out when God does show up that not only do we not know the right way to ask our questions, we don't know what we should be asking. So we should just stop. We should just stop. Again, I'm not saying you, you stop questioning God. I'm saying stop questioning Him in a way that leaves open the possibility that we're right and He's wrong. The peace and hope of our souls is dependent on whether or not we'll just rest and be content with what God has revealed about Himself and stop speculating. Sovereignty is almost impossible to deal with. I don't understand it. I, I, I really don't. They're just, there are things that... They're just, they're just there. And they can't be explained away as easily as we want to make it. You know, we, 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 we become... Have you ever noticed... You'll find in Job's friends, it's, it's easy to condemn them and put them down because the, the difference between them and Job is so stark. But really, if we're honest, what one of us hasn't been like at least one of those friends at some point in our lives? Just the way they start, like, like we'll get so confident in our own assertions about God, we'll laugh, like, like laugh when people disagree. Like it's so stupid and ridiculous that you would even, that you can't see it. It's so clear. It's not that clear. What is what I'm saying is what is clear is enough for you and I to rest, for you and I to have peace. Because while God's sovereignty is as one example of things that are hard to understand, one of the things about it is we need to realize that the sovereign power of God, His exclusive ability to ultimately do whatever He pleases with no one able to turn Him back, is the means by which our Redeemer would be provided. Please understand that. If God isn't sovereign, nobody's getting saved. There won't be a Redeemer. Job and his friends were trying to make sense of a world in which they were not sovereign, but someone was, and that someone was way beyond their understanding ultimately. Job is scratching the surface of it in 1619 when he says, in hope, Right, which which what you hear there is this belief that God is a certain way, and at the at the foundation of that is that God is allowed to decide, right? 
Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Right, Job, right. But how is it right? For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We didn't put him there. God put him there. Because God is sovereign. Hebrews 9, 24. So as, as we close, again, Job is, is very difficult to me to preach because at some point you have to start, I think, seeing what's underneath these men because it gets so repetitive. You have to accept that. You have to say, why is it repetitive? What is, what, what is happening here? Calvinism, for what it's worth, is insufficient to answer the deepest questions of our souls. Arminianism is insufficient to answer the deepest questions of our souls. And I bring those two labels up because when you start talking about sovereignty, that's where people go. Calvinism, Arminianism, those boxes are not big enough for God. They're just not. They're not. Our theories and pontifications and assumptions and presumptions are insufficient to answer the deepest questions of our souls. Why? Because all of these things are insufficient to meet the greatest need of our souls, which is salvation. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can do that. Remember, Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, not through a systematic categorization of it, but by the actual finished work of the Son who suffered and died and rose again and ascended victorious, who is at its center. So, beloved, don't fear the God who is in a way that causes you to reject Him. Don't make God earthly. Earthly people run out of grace, no matter how kind they are. God will never run out of grace because he isn't us. And God is able to keep every promise he has made. While there are things about God that continually make him hard to comprehend, what he has revealed about himself, that we have an advocate before the Father, that's what is true, is sufficient to give us peace. The questions will always be there. You know, they're just not a reason to disbelieve or distrust. We don't have all the information. Do we really think we could make it all better if we did? Beloved, we can't even handle all the information we do have. In Christ is the end of all hopeless speculation. We want God on the throne of the universe because he is filled with grace and mercy and love. Rest in him. Rest in what he has revealed about himself and consider that if he's revealed it he wanted you to know it Linda's going to come I'll pray to close us if any of you have questions or hurting anything like this please feel free to come forward and pray I'll be here let me close us Father I thank you for this book God, I pray that we would consider what is of first and most importance tonight. The gospel, as Paul tells us, Lord, I, I pray that if anything comes out of these messages as we try to just mine our way through Job, if anything comes out, that it would be you are bigger than we can possibly imagine. And yet, you are closer than we can ever possibly grasp because of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, may we rest in what you revealed to us and believe that it's for our good, not our harm. 
This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.